growing in God's Word, and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More and more, it seems like fewer and fewer people actually want to think. Most people are simply content to want the answer, or more particularly, they want the solution. Where God is trying to take us, where we can get to this place where life is the fullest extent that God intended for us to experience, it does not begin with answers. It actually begins with a question. Does God really exist? Most of us would answer that question without hesitation. Yes, God is real. But have you ever thought about the evidence of God's existence? To anybody living in Raleigh, North Carolina, or Addis Ababa, or Timbuktu, God has revealed himself simply in the night sky, in in, in the human body, in, in, in the world that we see around us, so that no person has an excuse for not knowing that God is. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. We're in a series we've just started entitled The I Am Series. It's a little different from many of the series we do here at Cross Culture Church where Pastor Clay would normally walk through the text in the Bible and make application for our lives. This series is different in that we're taking a few weeks to look at subjects about God that people sometimes have questions about. What is the Trinity? Why does God allow evil? Does man have any part in his salvation? Or is it something God has already decided for each person? These are some of the questions Pastor Clay is going to seek to answer in this series. But we started a couple of weeks ago by looking at some of the arguments and evidences for God's existence. Today, Pastor Clay is going to dive into a few more of the arguments and evidences of God's existence. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It is the personal name that God gives to himself. In Exodus 3, God revealed to Moses that his name was I Am. As Pastor Clay likes to say, that means God is the self-existing, always existing, everywhere existing one. As we'll hear today, there is plenty of evidence to support that truth. Now, here's Pastor Clay. We are in the early stages of a series entitled uh, the I Am series where my intent is to try and look at some of the uh, concepts or uh, ideas about God, some of the ones that perhaps are a little more difficult to grasp or to get our minds around, understanding that there is always mystery with God and the idea that we'll ever understand fully who God is, uh, quite honestly, I guess is an insult to God because uh, he is beyond uh, anything. Uh, and yet, to discuss uh, doctrine like the, the, the Trinity, what it is, what it means, what, it, what its implications are for our life. Why does evil exist? If, there, if God is a good God, why does he allow evil in the world? And uh, things like that are some of the issues that we're going to try and uh, discuss and, and, and take on uh, in this uh, series entitled uh, The I Am a series, looking at who God is and what it means for our lives. One of the things that uh, I, as I was working on this sermon, uh, I kind of, you know, sometimes in my office I'll just kind of get up on my own soapbox in the, uh, in the office. That's an old saying for those of you that are below 40 I guess, but to get up on a soapbox means to, you know, you just have something you want to rant about or something, you know, complain about or, or whatever, basically what it means. So sometimes in my office, I'll 
figuratively speaking, get up on my uh, soapbox, uh, of which I was on for a while uh, this week, because as I was working on this and discussing this, this idea, looking at some of these more difficult concepts about God and what the implications are uh, for our lives, uh, I was thinking about this fact, and I mentioned this to uh, Kale, our student pastor, uh, earlier this week when we met for a while, and, and I told him that one of the things that I have observed in my 20 or so years of ministry is... Uh, a culture that is increasingly what I would what I would refer to as an increasingly dumbed down culture, and that probably doesn't come as a surprise uh, to many of you, based on most of what's on television these days. But basically, what I mean by that is that um, we're we're living in a culture of instant gratification. Uh, everybody wants things now. Nobody wants to seem, and I'm. Okay, I'm, forgive me, I'm generalizing. I, I'm, y'all are the exception to the rule. Y'all are the exception to this, this what I'm seeing in, in the culture. But more and more, it seems like fewer and fewer people actually want to think, to, to critically think, to intellectually think through issues and why something works the way it does. Or uh, Most people are simply content to want the answer or more particularly, they want the solution. That's really what most people want. Just give me the solution. Just give me... Some of y'all have heard me say this before. This is a soapbox I have visited on other occasions. But just give me five steps to a happier marriage. Just give me, your three, just give me uh, three steps to more joy in my life. Just tell me what I can and can't do when I'm dating. Now, it's, it's not that, that a, a better marriage is not important. Obviously, it is. It's, it's not that... that what I can and can't do in dating is not important. It is. But what I have seen through the years, and, and, uh, and, I, and I'm quite sure I can be guilty of it and many other things, but uh, one of my uh, observations, it seems to me, of many uh, modern-day preachers is that uh, sermons and messages are becoming almost exclusively application-based. Uh, not that application is a bad thing. Obviously, application is not a bad thing. Uh, having a great marriage is something God wants for your life. Having joy and contentment in your life is something, uh, somebody that, that teaches or preaches the Word of God that can't bring application ought to step down and get out of the way. It's not that application isn't important. It's just that when it all becomes about the application, we're missing something in all of this. Does God want you to have contentment and joy and peace in your life? Of course he does. Does God want you to have the greatest marriage imaginable? Of course he does. Does God want you to date in a way that is healthy and holy? Yes, of course he does. And I guess, and this, this, is, this, is, where I'm, this is where I'm driving to. I guess if all of this God and Jesus and church stuff as the world would, would look at it, if this God and Jesus and church stuff, if all of this was just about me having a better life, if it was all just about me having this or, or me having that or a better this or a better that or, or, or better whatever, if it was all about that, then I guess this dumbing down and this just give me the answer, I guess all of that would be fine. But that's not what this is about. That, that's not what this is about. And, and that may come as a revelation to some of you. But this is not about you and me and about us having the best life we can possibly have. Again, does God want us to have that? Absolutely. But where God is trying to take us 
where we can get to this place where life is, is, where we can experience it to the fullest extent that God intended for us to experience it. It does not begin with answers. It actually begins with a question, with, actually with two questions. Who is God and what does God expect of me? That, ladies and gentlemen, is really the two critical questions that must be answered in order for you and me to experience life to its absolute fullest, to the fullest degree that God intended for us to experience it. It has to begin with this understanding of who is God and what does God expect of me? Because when all is said and done, when all is said and done in this crazy, topsy-turvy, don't hardly know what's going on one minute to the next world, when all is said and done, when you can begin and I can begin to understand who is God and what does God expect of me in my life, that's when everything begins to make sense in your life. This has application for everybody, but I, I hope children, teenagers are listening to me on this because I sure wish I'd understood this when I was their age. That it's in discovering who God is and what his expectations are on your life. That's where life is found. When all is said and done, what God is desiring to reveal to you is himself. Is himself. God knows you perfectly, completely, totally. Do you know God? Now, before you run off into that almost automatic answer, I want you to just, just in the quietness of this moment, not looking around at anybody else, just in your own mind, ask yourself that question. Do I know God? How well do you know God? Do you know why he is God or what makes him God or what, what God's designs on his creation are? Do you know God? That's what God is desiring to reveal to you and me. And that's a big deal. Speaking of revealing stuff, I mentioned two weeks ago that God revealed himself uh, to Moses and to the children of Israel uh, in Exodus chapter 3 with these words. He said, uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It is the personal name that God gives to himself. And it was a big, became a big deal to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So we're seeking to discover who this I am is and what the implications of that knowledge are for my life. I said this two weeks ago a couple of times, and I'm going to say it again today at least once, maybe twice. I'm going to remind you of this if you were here or hear it for the first time. God is not trying to prove himself to anybody. As I've said many times, not a big deal for the creator of the universe. If that's what he, his intention was. If that's what he wanted. Well, if I, if I could just prove myself to everybody, then, then everybody would, would believe. God is not trying to prove himself. God is revealing himself to anyone who desires to seek after him and to know him. As I've said to people many times, as the word of God says, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all of your heart. This desire to know God. Do you know God? Okay, so two weeks ago we looked at, or yeah, two weeks ago we looked at a couple of 
arguments, uh, the ontological argument and the cosmological argument. I've got four more in this to, that I want to share with you because it just, it just made sense to me. If we're, if we're looking at this idea of, of who God is and, and how do we know God and, and what his expectations are in my life, it seemed to me like a logical place to start would be to look at some of the evidences and arguments for the existence of God. Again, he's not trying to prove himself, but he is revealing himself. And so he has revealed himself in his creation. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. And, and so it's important that we, that we make that distinction and understand what that means, again, for our lives. So I've got four more that I want to share with you, uh, but I'm only going to give you two more of them today. We have baptismal service today. And, uh, and, and then, we'll, Lord willing, we'll get to two more arguments uh, or evidences for the existence of God uh, next week. Here we go. First one. Y'all ready? Y'all are very patient with me through, through all of my soapbox talking. Um, so we, we want to discover who God is. We want to discover what is. And so let, let's start with this idea. That what, what are some of the evidences or arguments for the existence of God? We're starting uh, today with uh, what is known as the teleological argument. Can y'all say that with me? Teleological. Say that again, will you? Teleological. <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted to hear you say it. Teleological argument. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. This should strike you. And I'll explain what the theological argument is in just a moment. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. I'll read it from the New Living. It says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky... Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Uh, Teleological uh, comes from or is based on the, the root Greek word telos, which means end or purpose. So, uh, teleological, uh, according to merriamwebster.com, then means exhibiting or relating to design or purpose, especially in nature. Exhibiting or relating to design or purpose, especially in nature. That's why it is also referred to as the design argument. The teleological or the design argument, because it is based on the idea that, that the, the complexity and the apparent design that we see in the universe all around us is simply too complex and too well designed to have possibly come into existence by pure random chance. That, in a nutshell, uh, to bring it up here, in a nutshell, it basically, the theological argument is basically asking the question, which does the evidence best support? The evidence that we see around us in, in, in creation, in, in the world around us. Which does the evidence best support? Design, intelligence, intention, or random chance? Which? Listen, we could, we could, we could literally spend the uh, next 27 years talking about some of this stuff, but it's just just start with our with our solar solar system. I just point that out. I just for some reason it's called a system. Our solar system, the stars and their their 
their amazing action. Do you know that sailors have been navigating by the stars for thousands of years, crossing vast oceans? The, the, the Earth's uh, axis, its, its distance from the sun, the gravitational pull of its moon, uh, and lots of other things, all work in amazing symmetry and coordination to make life possible on this planet which we exist. If you've ever looked at some of the research on that if the axis of the earth changed just such and such a degree or, or if we were su- just a, such and such many miles closer or farther away, life would be impossible on this planet. Uh, on our planet, speaking specifically of our planet, the ecological, let's see, what is that thing called? Ecological, oh yeah, system. The ecological system that we see around us, the, uh, the, the, uh, the complexity that we see in the, in the plant world and the animal kingdom and, and the symmetry and how these things uh, work together in such amazing harmony. How about just our, our bodies in general? How about our skeletal? How about our vascular? How about our nervous you understand what I'm, you, you understand why it was, is called that way? Because you, when you look at it, when you look at the skeletal system or the nervous system, all things, you see amazing complexity. You see design in this. And so it, it is more than a reasonable question to ask if it, is, if it is rational to believe that all of that could just happen by accident. It is reasonable and rational to ask, could all of that simply happen by accident? That and a thousand other things, the brain, the, our DNA, the, the eye, such complexity, such vast complexity. I think it's a rational and reasonable question to ask someone. Could that simply happen by, by random chance? Is it possible that, that somehow through some miraculous... Oh, no, we can't call it miraculous. Is it possible to say through some uh, random chance we went from goo to you? I mean, it really... You understand what I'm saying? I guess uh, probably uh, the best-known analogy of the teleological argument would be what's uh, Paley called the watchmaker's argument. Yeah, have you ever heard of the watchmaker argument or the watchmaker analogy? Or Paley, uh, William, is that his, I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, early 19th century, 1802, I think, or something like that, he, he came up with this uh, analogy for this design that we see uh, around us. And basically, Paley argument, if you're walking down the, the beach one day and uh, you scoop down into the sand and there buried in the sand, you pulled out a, a watch, a, a wrist watch, a po- when Haley would, uh, Paley would have said a pocket watch. If you, pull, if you pulled out a watch, you would not, in, in, in the remotest possibility, you would not say, wow, I wonder how that came into existence. Now, you might wonder how it, how did it end up here on the beach in the sand? What kind of story could that watch tell? You might wonder about something. But you would not wonder how that watch came into its existence. You would know as you looked at it, as you opened it, as maybe you opened the back of it because it's all full of salt water now or whatever. As you opened it up and you looked at it, you would know simply by your observations that the, the design of this watch says that there must be a watch maker. There must be a watch maker. That, that's... That was Paley's argument, the watchmaker argument, that, that a watch has, de- has, has design to it. It, it, it looks 
uh, like it has complexity to it, which it does to some degree. And so that must mean that there is a designer. That is the teleological argument. Make sense? I believe that is exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying in that text in Romans chapter 1 that we looked at a moment ago. And I wanted to look at it again in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. They know the truth about God. Why? Why? He's made it obvious to them, to, to all of us, but he's referring to those that reject a belief in God or the personal God revealed in Scripture. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. They've seen their, the hand right in front of their own face and, and how it operates. And they've seen the, the, the rotation of the, the earth and the other planets and the solar. So they've seen all this, this amazing complexity. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Listen, that would apply to anybody living in Raleigh, North Carolina, or Addis Ababa, or Timbuktu, that God has revealed Himself simply in the night sky. In, in, in the human body, in, in, in the world that we see around us, so that no person has an excuse for not knowing that God is. You understand? Which is why the psalmist says twice, Psalm 14.1 and 53.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's just foolish. Basically, just, it's just foolish to not believe in God. All right, let, let me... Uh, let me um, uh, one of my books that I use for a devotional uh, part of my morning stuff is A Closer Look at the Evidence. And it's apologetic type stuff. It's stuff about God and the Bible and all that stuff. And so I'd read some of these. And so I, I picked out just a few that I wanted to read just as examples because I'm wanting to get your mind around this idea. Understanding, okay, understanding that probably most of you are like, oh, I already believe in God. We'll get to that in a minute. But the fact that you already believe in God doesn't mean that there's not application in this for you. Already, you know, you know a new big word that you can use on somebody. Uh, listen, this is uh, evidence from physics. If the sun uh, were closer, we would burn up. If farther away, we would freeze. If our atmosphere was thinner, the meteors that now harmlessly burn up would constantly bombard us. If the moon was not precisely its current size and distance, the ocean tides would flood the land twice a day. If the continental shelf was smaller, the oceans would be deeper near shore, and this would lower the oxygen level in the atmosphere, making life much more difficult. A study of the ecological processes in nature, water, oxygen, uh, balance, seasons, day, night, cycles, etc., show that they must be maintained in delicate balance. Or Earth would just be another lifeless planet. The forces, the forces, speeds, and distances that hold our planet within our solar system, galaxy, and universe are all in delicate balance. The mechanisms that cause our bodies to function and reproduce are all finely tuned. The very constants that hold atoms together and keep the universe from flying apart or imploding are all in perfect balance. These are just a few examples which point to God's perfect maintenance plan. These and thousands of other variables seem to be held in precise balance to make both the earth and our universe a perfect habitat 
for human life. It is totally outside the realm of reason, the author says, to assume that all of these perfectly balanced systems just happened by chance. You understand? That's, that's, what, that's what the teleological argument is saying. Which does the evidence best support? Let me give you another one here. Y'all want to hear another one? <laughs> there, are more, there are more than 600 muscles in the human body. Some of y'all have better muscles than some of us. But there are more than 600 muscles containing, listen to this, about 6 billion muscle fibers in the human body. They make up about 40% of the body's weight. Some muscles are voluntary, like the muscles of the arms and legs. One must think to move these types of muscles. Other muscles, like the heart and the intestines, are involuntary. The the contraction and relaxation of these muscles uh, cannot be consciously controlled. Frequently, muscles work in pairs. For example, the biceps in the upper arm pulls the forearm up, whereas the tricep moves the forearm down. This perfect design allows one muscle to rest while the other muscle is being used. Each muscle has its own stored supply of high-grade fuel made from food, which the body converts into usable sugars. The muscle system also works together with other systems like the nervous and skeletal systems, and the nerve connections are required to signal muscles as to when the to contract or relax without a doubt their cooperative nature was planned I'm just saying oh I like this y'all, y'all know what the bombardier beetle is oh, that was kind of cool the bombardier beetle uses an incredible series of complex chemicals to protect itself y'all with me we're in science Biologists have discovered that inside the beetle's body are two separate chambers that make two special chemicals, hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone. Quinone. What was it, Rachel? What is it? Thank you. When, when these chemicals are mixed and ejected through a tube at the rear of the beetle's body, they explode at 212 degrees Fahrenheit in the face of would-be attackers. Now, get this. The beetle also produces a third chemical called the inhibitor, which keeps the chemicals from reacting too soon. Y'all can imagine what happens if they react too soon to the beetle. A final chemical, uh, an enzyme catalyst, sets off the violent reaction that protects the beetle from scalding, by scalding its attacker. How could this extremely, here's the question, how could this extremely complex system... Uh, defense system have evolved piece by piece into a functioning apparatus. It had to be fully functional the very first time it was used. If the chemicals were not just the right strength or in the right place, the beetle would have been killed by its predators because it couldn't have protected itself. If the inner chambers or tubes weren't perfectly designed and placed from the outset or in the inhibitor or the in, in the inhibitor technology wasn't quite ready in time, the beetle would have blown itself to pieces. A multitude of precise details had to be working perfectly from the start. This insect is truly a testimony to our Creator. Listen, I, I got to move on and get one more. But in redneck ease, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. It's a duck. If it looks designed, if it looks complex, if it looks created. It is designed. And there is a designer. That is the ontological argument. Now, uh, real quickly, let me give you a second one to think about and chew on for a little bit uh, this week. It is the moral argument. 
By the way, there are lots of arguments for the existence of God. Lots of people have been working on this kind of stuff for years. The, the, the teleological argument, by the way, uh, goes back at least as far as Socrates. The moral argument. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah's uh, woe warning exposes a very prevalent problem in our culture today. Now, the fact that Isaiah wrote it 2,700 years ago says to us that it's always been a problem, but certainly you and I are living in a day, certainly living in a culture where men, where women are doing exactly this very idea, calling something bitter sweet, something sweet bitter. You understand where he's going with this morally speaking, calling something wrong right, calling something right wrong. It is the moral argument and, and part of or connected to this idea of moral argument is something known as moral relativism. Moral relativism, that, that morality is relative to any given situation or any given particular person, that it's relative to that particular moment. It might also sometimes be referred to as situational ethics. Y'all ever heard that term? Situational the ethics, the idea that each person in each particular situation gets to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral. That certainly is the world in which we live. The moral argument is based on the fact that there is objective truth, objective morality in the world. Basically, the argument would kind of look like this. God is needed to provide a coherent foundation for the existence of objective moral values and duties. Now, I know that's a lot to, to think about there for a minute, but basically the argument can be broken down this way. Y'all with me? Everybody, everybody with me? It can be broken down this way. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties, uh, and, uh, duties do not exist. I'll explain Objective moral values in a moment. But if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. In other words, there are, there are moral standards that exist and have existed in the world from the beginning of time. Now, throughout time, there have always been people that have uh, uh, rebelled against those moral standards or those moral values... Right? There have always been people that have, have chosen to, to murder or to, to uh, steal or to whatever. There have always been people who have, who have gone against those moral values. But the, the fact that those moral values, those objective moral values, and by objective what I mean is that they are not based on, on any particular human being or group of human beings and their belief about that moral value. They are, they're not subjective to a group of people or to a particular situation, they are objective. They, they are a universal moral standard that has existed and has existed since the beginning of time. And man seems to, mankind seems to instinctively know that there are moral values in the world. And the question would be, where would those moral values come from? How could those moral values have come into existence if there were not a God who could who decreed what was morally right and what was morally wrong. For instance, the Holocaust was morally wrong regardless of what the Nazis thought about it or Hitler and would have been morally wrong regardless if the, if the Nazis had won World War II and made everybody subject to their boot heels. It still would have been morally wrong. It is an objective moral uh, truth 
And that is the moral argument. That, that moral, that, that an absolute objective moral exists in the universe. And for that to exist, there must be a God who put it in place. Not based on human thinking or human situations or anything else. Let me give you one, uh, just one example that I can remember. And I've, I've talked about these folks before some. Some of you are aware of the, uh, the great sacrifice that five missionaries uh, made uh, in the mid-1950s, 1956. Uh, Jim Elliott, uh, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Roger Yowderain, and Ed McCulley. Uh, I always like to try and remember their names because they gave their lives for the cause of Christ. Uh, they, they felt compelled by God to reach out to uh, an indigenous uh, people group in Ecuador known as the Alca Indians. They had another name as well, but they, they were the Alcas. They were a savage tribe, no civil, civilized person or civilized uh, contact with the world in any way. Uh, no missionary would make contact, no, no, nobody would make contact with them. And their mission agency refused to let them go and make contact with these Alka Indians. They said, no, it's too dangerous, we won't let you. They did it anyway. They just said, we're going. God's called us to go and we're going to go. Fascinating, amazing story. Uh, I encourage you to get a chance to read Through Gates of Splendor, uh, written by Elizabeth Elliot, um, uh, Jim Elliot's uh, widow. So it's a long story, I won't give you all of it, but there came a day when they, when they landed a little plane, the five of them in, they landed a little plane along the Cure River in Ecuador, and they were, they were going to make contact with these Alca Indians. W- within a fairly short amount of time, they were attacked by the Alcas, and they were brutally murdered. They were, they were, they were murdered, speared to death. Truly, as a result of their sacrifice, it's, it's, again, it's a long story, but as a result of their sacrifice, it opened the door for some of those men's widows and, and, and family members to, within a year or two, actually make contact with the Alka tribe. It's a long story, but be, directly because of their sacrifice. And the Alkas, many of the Alkas began to come to Christ, including the very men that murdered those five missionaries. They came to trust Christ as their Savior. One of the interesting things I remember reading about in an interview with them was that the, these, these men that, that murdered these missionaries. And, and listen, they were a very savage tribe. They attacked other tribes. They w- would murder uh, their men, carry their women off into captivity, and it was a very violent, violent uh, culture in which they existed. What was interesting was that in, in interviews, these men said, and this is what they said, we knew that what we were doing was wrong. We knew that it was wrong to murder those men. We knew that it was wrong to murder other tribes. And, and to, to steal their possessions. and to get down. We knew it in our heart. That's literally what it said. We knew it. We knew in our hearts that what we were doing was wrong. The question would be how? How would they know that? If, if they've never been in contact with any civilized people to tell them murder's wrong, how would they know that? How would they instinctively know that what they were doing was wrong? That is the moral argument. Now, Two, two weeks ago, two today, Lord willing, two next week. All of these, uh, all of these um, arguments are fine and good. Each of them on their own, I believe, has some merit and worth looking at. And taken together, I, I think they, they build a strong case of evidence and an and argument for the very existence of God. Again, reminding you that God's not trying to prove himself. God's not, God's not wringing his hands in heaven saying, Oh my gosh, I hope Clay doesn't blow this. I sure hope he's able to convince these people to, to believe him. As I said, most of you probably already do believe in him. He's not trying to prove himself, but he's trying to reveal himself. And, and, and this is why this matters. If you say, yeah, I, 
I do believe in God. I believed in him before I came in here, and I still believe in him. Or I, I didn't believe in him before I came in here, but, but man, those are some pretty compelling arguments. I, I, I think I do believe in the existence of the creator of the universe. I, I think I do believe in the existence of God. This may surprise you after spending the last two weeks uh, presenting arguments for the existence of God when I say this, but so what? So what if you believe in God? Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Believing in God is good. Is good. But you know what the Apostle James says about believing in God? You say you have faith, for you believe there's one God. Well, good for you. I, I just believe that's how James wrote it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Believing that God exists is good. It is a starting point. As a matter of fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, tells us that very thing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must what? Must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So, uh, you, you do have to believe in God. It, it is a starting point. All I'm saying to you is, it's not enough. It doesn't answer. Do you remember those first two questions we started with? Belief in God doesn't answer either of those first two questions. What were the first two questions? Who is God? And what does God expect of me? Believing in God doesn't answer those questions. It's a start. It's a, it's a place you, ha- you have, to, uh, have, to, have to start, obviously, with a belief in God. But to get to those questions requires a relationship. And a relationship comes into being only through a surrender of a person's individual life to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why he came. That's why the creator God came and sacrificed. And I'll have more to say about that. But that's why he came to make it possible for you to not simply know that he is. Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. Look around. Of course he is. No big deal. James, you believe in God? So do the demons. Make it possible so not only that you can believe, but you can know him. That's where, that's where, that's where this is going. Know him. Because I said at the beginning, it, it's, not, it's not about finding the answer. It's about finding God. It's about re- him revealing himself to you in a way that you can know him personally and walk with him and experience all that life can be in relationship with him. Do you know him? you believe in him great do you know him if you do you've been to the cross if you don't you haven't because that's the only way to know him well we've heard several arguments today that are used to support the belief in god's existence but as pastor clay has been reminding us god is not trying to prove himself to anybody first off he doesn't have to he's god Second, if God wanted to prove himself, that wouldn't be very hard for him. Instead, God wants to reveal himself to those who would open their hearts and their minds to not only his existence, but to his purposes and plans for each of our lives. So what about you? Do you believe? Is that a belief that has changed your life? If not, maybe it's time to consider what you truly believe. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere and celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross-culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. A community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person. Real people who truly care. Solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens. And the most energetic, safe, and fun kids program around. Find out more at crossculturelife.org. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross.
Cross Culture Church in North Rollins, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.